Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Are you well this Thursday? If it is indeed Thursday that you're listening to this, I don't know, some people save it up and listen to this on their weekend walk. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I do hope you're well. And if you're in the UK, I hope you're taking full advantage of the last few days of sunshine before we all don our big, thick winter jumpers for the uh, for the autumn Christmas, which I'm, yeah, I'm half looking forward to, to be honest. Um, so last week's episode, now, incredible reaction from everybody that, that listened, and I know some people got in touch and said, Craig, you know what, I'm in a bit of a brittle way at the moment, and I don't feel that I can wrap my ears around a subject such as suicide, which, you know, we, we did give you trigger warnings, uh, trigger warnings, can't even speak, um, which is not helpful when you're the host of a podcast, is it? Let's be honest. Um, now, I don't... And I'm not going to read this email out um, because we're not the Steve Wright Show. Um, Google that, kids. Um, but I got an email that was so beautiful and also very sad. Um, so I suppose... Yeah, I'm not going to read it out, but what I want to do is just send lots of love and our thoughts from myself and producer Griff to Simon, who took his time to to send uh, the email. And yeah, all our love and thoughts with you and the family, Simon. Thanks so much for sending that email during such a difficult time. Now, uh, this week's episode is episode 132, and it is with the actor April Pearson, who, uh, she was in Brighton, and we had a lovely natter yesterday. Of course, look, you know when I have actors on, and I tend not to talk too much about jobs for the actor, and I reiterate this in the episode itself, but we do, we do dive in to the TV show Skins, for a few reasons, one being it was such a groundbreaking show at the time, and still is. I went back and watched some little bits for research, and my God, it stands up because of the performances and the writing and the subject matter um, where teenagers actually, for once on television, spoke how teenagers do and behave by uh, the way a lot a lot of teenagers do which you know was quite shocking for a lot of parents at the time thinking crikey is that what my son or daughter's up to um yeah they, they probably are let's face it um so let's uh, let's get into this this is episode 132 of the two shot podcast with the wonderful april pearson enjoy and i shall see you at the end How are you? Um, and all right. In, I, a bit like <laughs> bit of a pause you know, there. Uh, 
it's a bit of a pause, but like, um, what is life now, right? Yeah. Um, a bit? I'm not too sure. I mean, I walked out to the supermarket today to get some... Uh, so boring. I was cleaning the shower. And I've run into lots of lovely, happy people because the sun's out and mm. we're in September and it's gorgeous. But still, there's a, a cloud hanging over everybody with what's going on. <laughs> yeah. I think it's an unavoidable cloud, isn't it? Like, yeah. Well, it's just it, there in the background. Yeah. All the and time. And there's also, like, even, even when you do kind of venture out to the open-air theatre and sit on Brighton Seafront, which is where I live, and watch some comedy. Mm. You're still, like, easily five metres away from the next table. And then part of, like, a comedy gig is when you're sort of squished up round next to a person and they're pissing themselves laughing and then you're laughing more because they're finding it so funny. Yeah. So then you're still like, well, I tried to have a nice evening, but it was still a bit shit. (laughs) Well, it's just not... Right. It's like I went yeah. to a I went to a um I went to a music gig a few weeks ago and we're all in little pens, like fenced off pens. Wow. So there was me and my mate in one and then in the next one there was people on like camp chairs sat down at a gig and everybody's di- it was it was just very, very odd. But I had I have a feeling that it's gonna be like that for some time and I spoke to um the band afterwards to see how they found it because obviously their audience reaction is going to be very different because they're everybody's so far oh away God, and so yeah. distant and they're not going to get that huge roar of the crowd that kind of spurs them on to go into the next song so they were just and that, but it was the first gig that they'd played since um since lockdown because they were supergrass were on a a big world tour all this oh year with the, with all their comeback stuff. And wasn't singing, like, illegal at one point? Well, um, I think for some people it should be made illegal, but people, <laughs> people don't seem to listen. <laughs> certainly certainly if, I'm, if I'm singing Cleaning the Shower, you don't want to hear that. Um, no. But, yeah, I mean, also at this venue, there, as you said, there was comedy going on. And it's like... You know, I started off seeing stand-up comedy downstairs in Crouch End in London at the King's Head, and I don't know if you've been there or yes, uh, you, I have. you must have been there. And all, there's certain listeners that will have been there, and it's what a comedy venue, certainly what I envisage a comedy venue to be: very small, slightly grubby, sticky carpets. You're all sort of jam-packed downstairs yeah. in a cellar, and. You know, you can see the hecklers. You can, see, you well, yeah, because they're usually probably <laughs> they're right there, they're right there, or probably on your table. Um, yeah. And it must, you know, uh, for comedians, it must be extra difficult because it's like they're not getting, they're not getting the ride of the laughter. So yeah. for a for a venue like such as the King's Head or those little gorgeous small grassroots venues, which is where loads of comedians that you don't see on telly. Uh, make a living yeah now they're going to play in open fields and it's like must be like playing the o2 because the the joke's got to go all the way to the back to come all the way i just don't know how they do it 
Yeah. And you miss out on those little nuances of like Mr. and Mrs. Smith in the front whispering something. Mm. And like, oh God, he said that. And then you can pick up on something just little and it turns into possibly the best joke of the night. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It was like, it was nice to try being normal again, but, and also just to try and like get some creative energy from somewhere, just to like feed off something that kind of made me feel like I was you know, worthy in this world of, of necessity and, like, key work. And now you're kind of like, right, well, well, what I'm doing is not a necessity and is not, um, you know, uh, saving lives. So what do I do for a bit now, really? Well, yeah, but these are the constant questions that we're asking ourselves all the time. I mean, lockdown or no lockdown, right? Exactly. But <laughs> speaking during this time, I don't want to focus too much on it because I always want these episodes to kind of last, and I don't want people going back to and going, oh, they're just talking about all that. And I try not to, but it's really difficult not to. But how, how's it been? You just touched on it there. How's it been creatively for you, sort of, during um, the last few months? I don't know. If I feel like it started like everyone else, you know, like lists and lists of, like, right, I'm going to fully learn Spanish. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have written five scripts. I'll have three films in pre-production and I'll have finished the four that were in post. So then by the time we come out of lockdown, inverted commas, I'll have a back catalogue of stuff and I'll be ready to hit the ground running. And then I think the the kind of reality of that set in and you just go, oh my God, I have got literally no motivation to do anything. And even mm. if I do, there's nowhere for it to go. And therefore, what's the point of creating and I, I suppose in that sense every freelancer on the planet is is feeling the same because if you're not creating something you're not being paid and therefore um it's been quite um disorientating I guess and and that's uh that's been really tough but it's also been a bit weirdly kind of liberating knowing that everyone's weathering the same storm you know? Well, that's like, what I was I saying, hate, yeah. I hate the thing of we're all in the same boat because we're not in the same boat. We're in the same storm. And for once, I, get, I guess that kind of niggling, actory thing of, like, everyone else is working and I'm not is, is kind of like, well, actually, no one is unless you've got a big enough budget to front the COVID cost. But even then, you know, when one of the first films back up and running was... Think I'm right in Jurassic saying Park? was the new Jurassic World film, and after they put in, I don't know, either five million dollars, five million pounds, sort of COVID safety measures, and then within a few days, this certain crew were testing positive, and it's like I've said it before, you know, you can't just sling a load of money at this yeah. thing and hope it's going to go yeah. away. Yeah. So you know what? It's not been great, but like it's not been great for a lot of people. And there have been good moments. There have been fun things and small wins that I found um, really uh, restorative, I guess. Um, so. And I suppose being by the seaside must have helped. Surely. Especially when we had lovely weather. What? You know, that very small a... week that we had. That, um, that... <laughs> yeah, but that's better than nothing. <laughs> that's true. And uh, I hadn't been in the sea in Brighton. I've lived here for six years and I hadn't been in the sea at all. Because mm. um, it normally looks a bit like slop. So I'm just like, that can't be good. And then I went in this year and it's bloody lovely. So Well, I'm from Blackpool, so I know all about grotty um, sea. Yeah. But I was talking to my dad 
uh, uh, maybe sort of eight weeks in, and he went out and he said it was just he'd never seen it as blue since since he was a kid. It was always mm. very very dingy and murky and muddy, brown, not inviting in it anyway. And then I was looking at pictures of Venice, and it's just stunning. So yeah. with all the negativity, there's small pockets of yeah. positive that's coming out of this. Of the earth just breathing a sigh of relief for a minute. <laughs> just for a minute. But anyway, yeah. this isn't about the pandemic, or this is about you, April. This is why I'm so pleased that you've come on uh, to have a chat with me. No, thank you. And whenever I have actors on, and I have all sorts of, of different creative people on. Um, and I've said this, I even said this on last week's very um, heavy episode. I tend not to talk or focus on work because that's part of our work and it's kind of boring. Um, but when you're involved in such a groundbreaking show as Skins, it'd be remiss of me not to have a little talk about it. Okay. Um, Try and ask me a question I haven't been asked. Well, I tend not to ask questions. Okay. I tend to sort of have a conversation about it. Let's have a free-form conversation that no-one's ever heard. Well, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what we're going to be having. I'm pleased, that you've, I'm pleased you've predicted it. Um, how old were you when you first got involved with that? Because you were involved uh, from Series God. 1. Yeah. So the, the casting director came to my school mm. when I was 16. And then was this when I you were had, when you were head girl? Yeah. See. Yeah. Oh, actually, no, complete lie. That's a lie. You I weren't. wasn't head girl at this point. Um, that was in the last year of sixth form. Ah, okay. So this was like the the as it was then AS level. Do they still uh-huh. have them? Don't know. I mean, I think so. No, don't talk about the pandemic anymore. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so yeah, she Jane Ripley came to my school when I was sixteen. And then I had my 17th birthday. I think it was something like three days before we started shooting. Wow. So I was really young, yeah. But at the time, when you're that, when you're that age, you're like, I'm so old. I'm <laughs> 17. <laughs> I know everything. Of course, but we all think that. So, you, yeah, you know, we're, on that, we're all definitely in the same boat. Yeah, true. But had you... Because I know that you'd you'd done little bits and bobs at a younger age of acting, hadn't you? Yeah, I went to Bristolvic Youth Theatre, and it was the best thing ever. Of course. Um, yeah, although I suppose when you're around lots of young people who share a passion, if not a talent for performing in some way, you never really think of yourself as like a standout. Like I'm gonna be, I'm gonna make it in the acting world. It's kind of more of a, you know, everyone's like an arty kid and they're all mm-hmm. quite quite up for being in the, in the centre and doing a, doing a show. Um, and I don't think it was until I started auditioning for the school play um, and, they get, and they started giving me a part, which was only sort of towards the end of school, that I kind of saw that I might have like a, a natural efficient, uh, proficiency. What is it? F- 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 a natural gift. <laughs> I don't want to say gift because it's bollocks. I knew you were trying. Um, you were so trying hard not to I say know. gift. Affinity. Aff- there we no. go. There you go. Had a natural um, affinity with performing, and I think um, 
obviously I I would have stood out more at school because some of the students wouldn't have wanted to do performing as much as me. Um, Was it more, was it a more academic school or was, yeah, yeah, much so? It was, it was academic to the point where we have a prize giving, had a prize giving um, at the end of the you know school year mm. and when you were in sixth form and you were kind of graduating the school they would do a rundown of like this person is going to this university to study blah and this person is going to this university and then if you were having a gap year or if you were going straight into employment they'd be like this person is going to employment <laughs> and it was a kind of bad thing that you were not going to university wow and i was obviously about to start shooting the second series of skins when i left and uh, or maybe I was halfway through it actually, and it said on my thing as an as also as an ex head girl that I was um, going into employment. And my dad phoned the school, and he was like, "April isn't going into employment. She is an actor. Can you please amend the menu or whatever it is? You know, the menu of students. Um, and can you say that when she goes to pick up her? Oh, I don't know. I think it's a Bible or something. And they did. And they did, Amanda. They did. Yeah. Now, just explain to the audience, because your dad is involved in the industry, isn't he? He is. What does yeah. he do? Well, he's he's retired now and he mm. plays as tuba in his brass band. So I think he's much happier than he ever was in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for about 26 years, he was the head of locations at um, Casualty. Mm. So when Casualty was at, uh, based in Bristol... And then he moved with them to Cardiff when they set up the whole big BBC lot out in Cardiff. Um, and he worked, he, he did the BBC thing of working there for long enough to still be self-employed and then go and do a summer of, you know, um, bits and bobs and fun stuff and then come back to to scouting and stuff for, for casualty. So with your dad being in the industry... Did, was he uh, supportive with what you wanted to do with your life or was he going, OK, right, April, listen, I've seen enough actors get chewed up and spit out and it's a very unforgiving industry to start to even tiptoe down? Or was he going, yeah, do you know what? You should go for it and find out yourself. Definitely the latter. Right. Do I wish that he'd had a bit of the former in there as well? Probably. Mm. But then I suppose they did send me to an academic school. I did get good grades. So there was that kind of, you know, you could fall back on that. Um, And I think the problem is and still, the problem was then and still is, is I just don't like anything else as much. In terms of like a career, I'm not work shy. I've done all sorts of you know side ho- side mm. hustles, um, but there's just nothing like it. And just going back to Skins now, as an audience member, I do remember watching it and not seeing anything quite as bold on telly in a long time. So w- when you were reading these scripts, were you thinking? Oh, well, I'm sure we won't have to do that. I'm sure they'll sort of fudge that or somebody else will do that. But a lot of it was pretty full on for such a time. I think um, because we were so green and so naive, like I don't think I'd ever read a TV script before, you know, in the format that it was in. Like, 
in a big at the time it was all printouts you know bibles of different colored pages mm-hmm. and i think i think it it was almost so exciting to just read a tv script i don't think i necessarily even registered that it would be me doing that stuff um yeah i don't think uh, i think in that kind of naive teenage mind i was like yeah i can just do that that'd be fine i'll do all of that great and then you just think back on it and you go why didn't someone ask if that if i minded (laughs) well i was gonna ask that because i i I started to flick around the other day and I was trying to watch little bits and get through as much as I could just to remind me and I, I mean for one it still stands up now as as a as a truly groundbreaking drama and then I was thinking because you were all pretty and I, am I right in saying that you were all pretty much the same age as the what the characters were yes there was discrepancies of about two and three years but dev was the youngest he was about 15 mm. and then joe dempsey was the oldest at 19 but everyone was the was oldest much... the oldest but also the youngest at the same time sure joe sure. I'm, I'm joking joe you know i love you it's fine <laughs> the greatest actor ever um Truly. but yeah definitely a young brain <laughs> <laughs> but also it's like were the safeguarding measures for such a young cast to be I mean, and then I was thinking, would one, would scripts like that get passed today? And two, would what was going on back then actually be allowed to be filmed today? I don't know. Uh, There were certainly certainly scenes that we shot that weren't weren't, um, able to be aired. Let's put it that way. Because of its its content, because of the graphic content. Yeah, Um, and because of our ages... When, when it was shot. Mm. So, but again, you know, so many of us were, well, I think at the time, I think Joe had representation um, kind of locally, but nothing, like Nick was the only one who had an agent sort of, I guess, looking out for him on the contract side. So, you know, to, to all intents and purposes, we did what we were told. I mean, I've, I've seen videos of Dev, like, you know, talking about skins in his David Copperfield interview this year, mm. being like, I look at that and I just am excruciatingly embarrassed that I did it. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's like, for me, it's not so much embarrassment. It's just that uh, I look at, um, you know, you say, would it be allowed today? Well, it wasn't until I watched Euphoria on Sky that I felt what an audience would have felt when they watched Skins because it was the first time I'd seen um, a kind of level of explicit content and um, that kind of representation across the board of, of, you know, a kind of a spectrum and beyond Mm. that I felt compelled by this programme and I I was so shocked and in awe and kind of you know, in love with all of the characters, I thought, my God, this must be what people felt like when they watched Skins. And and I suppose, to answer the question, yeah, I do think that kind of stuff would would be made now and written, but I do think the level of protection and um, the kind of, I guess, sensitivity with which actors are dealt with mm-hmm. is probably, in, in fact, is 
leaps and bounds ahead of of what we went through mm. as if it was like a hardship but like you know things like normal people I watched Paul Mescal interviewed and obviously the question of how did you find the sex scenes um or how did you feel about the sex scenes and his answer was empowered and it almost like it, it made me want to cry because if someone asked me that about you know even at the time when I was 17 and I wasn't very good at articulating myself I would have said like oh yeah it was you know a bit embarrassing there's loads of people in the room so it's not very sexy and <laughs> I would have never ever ever said I would have been I would have felt empowered so that's amazing the fact that we've got to that point and also this was a time where teenagers were speaking dialogue and they sounded like teenagers it's exactly what the conversations that teenagers are having mm-hmm. back then. And I think that was very rare to see on television. Even now, I think, when uh, less skilled scriptwriters uh, write for teenagers, <laughs> it just it sounds like a mid-50s screenwriter writing what he thinks a teenager would, would speak like. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. another reason why when it burst onto the screen, why maybe parents found it quite shocking going, I think I, I might have made it up, but I do remember reading some article somewhere that certain parents had to watch it because they were, they were wondering, well, is this what our teenagers are, are, are getting up to? Mm. Yeah, that's exactly what they're getting up to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also I saw an article recently cause I was doing my own research and, uh, which was about how skins managed to um, not glamorize, and I think so much of what we were taught when we were doing media training straight after the show was like, "You will be asked, is this is this what you do? Is this like what you do?" And you know, we were told it it's a version of, but it's for effect, it's for dramatic effect, it's been pushed to the limits, all of the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually the great thing about what Skins managed to pull off, and I'm not sure it has has been done since, is that kind of balance between it being, like you say, rip, put in the mouths of young people, but actually to, for it to feel like it's organic and not and not kind of being poked fun at. It's just like this is this is what we're doing, and I think part of that was that all of the adults in the show were kind of written with a with a young person's eye. Mm-hmm. So all the teachers were idiots. All the parents were hopeless in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I think, it was that that kind of made the young people the stars of the show because they were living their best lives, to use a very modern phrase. No, but they were. Um, but, yeah. Do you think as, uh, as the series moved on, it was given freedom to take more risks or because they saw maybe a a possible backlash, even though it was very popular, that they were going to dilute it down slightly? I don't know. Um, I think the problem problem with series... uh, I think some of my favourite series do two or three and then they just call it a day because you can't you just can't keep 
finding something new and exciting in in a format that's pre-existing. Mm. You just can't. Um, and I feel like actually probably the first the first option of of pushing it forward. I think it got to the point where they kept trying to top it in some way. Yeah. That that it it left that kind of realm of reality and entered a an overdramatized kind of farcical almost like laugh at it kind of show. Um and I've you know I've spoken to a lot of the guys that came and did the the, the later generations of skins and they they had like they did have big shoes to fill and they you know they knew it as well but I think there was something kind of magical about the fact that we were the first ones and therefore so naively kind of just I guess everyone was cast to be that person mm. and it was just the the right timing that you can't then recreate it in a way. And also, That's such a bad answer. No, it's I not. I don't think it, I don't think it is a bad answer because yeah, I think you, you know you were really thinking it through. But I, just to add, I think it's impossible to sustain something like that from series to series, which is why because the the, the series after. You know, I was literally, I was talking to Dakota Blue, who was in the last series, and she she said something else. I just didn't even think about it. But when they were auditioning, they knew they were auditioning for skins. Like, when we were auditioning, we were just like, cool, let's audition for this thing. Yeah. And so you've already got this idea in your head about what it's going to be, who the character is. So you're already, there's already that level of performance. And I think maybe the magic of certainly the first two series was... That that kind of relatable thing that teenagers watched, and you know, teenagers and upwards, and and just felt seen. And also, I was thinking because you were all thrust together, uh, pretty much all quite unknown, maybe apart from Nick from when he was younger. Would mm-hmm. do you look back on it now and think what an incredible? gift of a training ground it was yeah i mean yeah i think for for many reasons one the i don't think you can ever get given a a gift of learning a set like that you know i i mean i haven't been to drama school but i just don't know how anyone could ever teach you to get up at 4am get picked up in a taxi get thrust into a makeup trailer pulled about for a good two hours throwing some breakfast down you and then for the next eight hours churn out performances mm-hmm. um and and the repetitious nature of shooting something and we had two cameras and skins and and even then it was constant um that for me and that all of the lingo the kind of the way that people speak on a set, the, the fast-paced nature of it, the fact that, you know, you drop the ball and everything's fucked for the rest of the day. Yeah. That, that is just... The pressure of that was, was um, you know, amazing to learn. And, and I think really for us, like, you know, for the, for the lead ensemble, it was, it was only when the actors who were, you know, they'd 
it was it was when the Harry Enfields turned up and the Bill Baileys and, you know, Arabella Weir coming in to play my mum. It wasn't until we were confronted with actors in the industry who were just jobbing actors and they were like, cool, I'm here to do the thing. Where's my light? How do I... Oh, so you want... OK. It wasn't until we had that to feed off that mm-hmm. we were like, oh, wow, OK. This is how we up our game. And I can watch it now and I feel like, for me personally, have my, having my own, like scrutiny on my performance i i do think it took about seven seven episodes and therefore god what's that three blocks so four five months to actually be able to churn out performance that is like nuanced enough Uh and it was a director called minky spyro and it was the first female director we'd had i love minky i love her she's great amazing um and i think it was the first time where she just really, really got, got, just got it through to me that the performance is, is already there. Like you don't need to just project this mm-hmm. thing of Michelle. Like she'll capture it eventually um, if we do it enough that she, you know, in the way that she likes. Um, yeah, and it's the scene with me and Danny Dyer. Can you believe that I finally watched and I was like, yeah, okay. You get in there. <laughs> I possibly can't believe me. No, I, Although... I, I know what you mean. <laughs> so, just jumping back now, you were talking about your dad being involved with Casualty. Is that what uh, took you to Bristol? Did you move to Bristol for work, or were you already based in Bristol? So he and my mum had a production company when they were in London, and they moved mm. out to Bristol with the Natural History Unit. And um, that was set up in Bristol for a long time. And they worked out of Bristol. Then they had me, so I was born in Bristol. And my mum stayed in the industry, but as a kind of um, production manager, as opposed to kind of out in the field. And then, um, and my dad, I think, already had the job at Casualty before I I could walk. So... um, yeah, I was a baby, I think, the first time I appeared in Casualty. <laughs> they were like, Start, oh, my God, you need a baby. <laughs> but I was like, I've enough. got one of those. <laughs> so, so you were thrust into it, April, you, but you basically had no choice, did you? This was um, going to be the path. I do remember, I don't remember, actually, that's a complete lie. I have seen a baby video where I'm at my great-grandmother's nursing home and I've done like a performance or something to all of the old people in the nursing home and they're all sort of looking at me. I don't know what I'd done, some sort of song. I must have been about three. And um, I waited for a bit and at the end I was like, clapping time, clapping time, (laughs) telling them that that was when they they were allowed to clap. So I don't know whether that was something my parents did or whether it was I just came out that way. But um, definitely it's been the bane of my life and a plague since. And was it a happy time growing up in Bristol? Because it's such... I remember talking to Riley Ritchie about it um, when he moved to Bristol. It's such a... And I used to live not far from Bristol. Um, there always seems to be something going on. It's got such a sort of vibrant art scene, fantastic restaurant scene. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real buzz about Bristol. Did you find that growing up? Hundred percent, and I every time I go back, I just think, God, this place is so great. It's just such an amazing cosmopolitan city, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, I we actually went to the same school, Riley and me and Riley. Oh, did you? 
Yeah, Stefan Park Junior School. Ah, um, although man. he was quite a few years below me. Um, but yeah, you know, it's such a cool place. It's so inclusive, creative, arty, and and accepting, and it's kind of got the best of all of the everything. You've yeah. got a really metropolitan city centre, and then a stone's throw away, you've got you know beaches and beautiful scenery and and bath just down the road if you want some decent history it's just um it's just a great place and yeah i think you i mean you don't know what you've got do you until you're an actor and you're carted off to different places of in the country and you're like oh right bristol's quite good then really mm. isn't it yeah and i'm in a travel lodge on the, the a whatever thinking yeah. oh but it's okay. but it is also such a gift that you go oh my god i would never ever dream of going to this city or this country and I'm going here to work and then I've just disco- yeah. and I've discovered something else I remember when I India was never on my hit list at all I god knows why I'm an idiot yeah. and then definitely it's my number one. Oh, well when I went for the very first time it took me about 10 days to acclimatize because uh, I felt great sadness and it really struck with me because of the the rich and the poor living side by side on the street. It's very, very hard to get my head and my heart around it. And then all of a sudden, I just fell completely in love with the culture and the people. And it's still one of the most incredible places. But it's just yeah. so... And, I, and I, you know, you're talking, and not to be wanky, but it is a gift that you get given and you go, oh, my God. I get here, I'm getting paid to work here, and I've just found something else about me that I would never have even begun to have looked at Mm -hmm. until, because someone's given me this opportunity. Yeah. Um, Apart from when you're in an Ibis um, in in Sheffield, off a motorway. All right, all right, baller, (laughs) Ibis. I'd just like to say this podcast isn't sponsored by Ibis (laughs) or Travel Lodge. But if they want to, then, you know, that we'll, we can have some sort of discussion about it. Um, so we've already touched on that you were very academic at school. So when did the drama come into play? What, what you, when were you allowed to start uh, Bristol Old Vic? Was that- I, was, I was one of the first kids to ever do it. So I must have been... We did a show called All's Well Behind the Curtain... I remember, and I must have been about f- maybe even three again, three or four. God, that early! So like a little tidy child, yeah. Um, and then that we were sort of that first year group that then uh, went on until they started coming in below us. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not. Sh- I, d- I mean, I don't know now. I know it's a, it's a very thriving youth theatre, but I'm not sure how young they go now. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely like a Thursday night tradition, sometimes longer, and uh, it was really it was obviously we had access to the Bristol Vic, which is one of the most beautiful theatres. It really in is the country, yeah. And um, you know, it was the smell of the grease paint. Literally, um, we would go around the back of the dressing rooms up to the rehearsal room. We'd be in amongst you know all of the props the set the costume drawings everything it was it was the most amazing education in terms of the craft of of stage work and also just you know what it's like behind behind that stage door really um 
And I, you can't, I think you just can't help but, but be completely swept along by that, even in its most grubby. <laughs> but that's... Well, show me the backstage of a theatre that, that isn't grubby, but what a real buzz at that age. Yeah. And yeah. Such... Just the smell of when you accidentally leave something plastic on the lights, on the, the lights around the mirror. Mm-hmm. That's that sort of constant smell of burning, of, of like, horrible hairspray... And and I suppose the burning of just dust on on very hot theatre lights, it's just intoxicating. And the odd scurry of a possible rat backstage. Correct. Yeah. I mean, po- probable. I it's, would say th- this is all part and parcel of the charm. Certainly in London theatres. I remember just speaking of of sort of that intoxicating feeling. Uh, last year, I, my little boy, I took my little boy um, around a, a theatre that also has a cinema in, and they very kindly sort of showed him backstage, and they were doing a get-in for a show, and it was all quite buzzy, and he just hadn't seen anything like it. And then we went into the cinema section, and we went up to the old projection room, and he was looking at how they would turn the reels, and it's, you know, it's not like that anymore. Mm. And... It, he, you know, he, he was just completely overwhelmed by it all, and it's just yeah. such a lovely, beautiful thing to show children yeah. backstage. Yeah. So that, and, and like you say, it's just not like <laughs> imagine, like it's just not a reel-to-reel situation anymore in a cinema. Sadly, not. It's, no. It's like, give a USB, plug it in. Away, go. away you go. It's another yeah. another man's job or another woman's yeah. job lost. I feel like if we took if we took your son in there and saw the, saw them doing that, he'd be like, so so what? Is this it? Great. Is this like the, the magic of cinema? <laughs> so I I remember um, reading an interview with somebody who was it. I forget it every time, and it wasn't Michael Caine, but it was somebody of that era and they said to them well look if you've got all those grades to fall back on then you might as well not do this because you you can go and fall back on it so you've got a safety net Mm -hmm. but you had that safety net was that always the plan um it's weird because you can always talk about it like oh you've got something to fall back on but that doesn't mean I think I feel like I am a bit like my dad said in my school graduation, I am an actor. Mm-hmm. Like there isn't there isn't any fallback after that. Like, no. yeah, okay, I could do eight open university degrees and I wouldn't say it's me falling back on any of those. It would be me being an actor and doing being a lawyer at the same time. Although I would say that that being a lawyer is like, the huge element of that is being a performer anyway, <laughs> but maybe something else, a chef. Um, again, element both, of performance. A uh, huge <laughs> element of performance. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, you know what I mean. I you do know, what, know I mean. what you mean, yeah. So, uh, I, yeah, I kind of don't, I, I just, I don't agree with that. Like, you know, well, if you, if you've got something else going on, then you may, then you're not putting all your eggs into this basket mm-hmm. and you're not passionate enough. Mm-hmm. Because I don't believe it's something that you can be passionate about one minute and not the next. It just is True. something you live and breathe. Yeah. But it is quite an unforgiving profession. Quite. <laughs> she says <laughs> in sweet marks. <laughs> um, 
And I was thinking about coming out of a show as successful, as huge, as groundbreaking, a show that had a buzz that got a water cooler moment back, uh, not only just at, at offices, but at schools, at colleges. You're, you're on a high, right? I was thinking, these young actors have been training for one, two... How many seasons did you do? Two. Two. So quite intense. So where was the support for you as young actors after that? Just thinking about the unforgiving nature of the industry. Um, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I have had conversations with people in the very recent past about the fact that it wasn't there. Um, about the fact that none of us had a kind of industry mentor. Um, it's all very well having support and love from your family. Mm-hmm. but and, and even with, you know, my parents being in the industry, certainly no one have, has ever experienced that kind of uh, attention and, and uh, notoriety. So uh, it, unless you've got the guidance of an agent who has your best interest at heart, and and who has a good and clear idea of how to market you, it's very difficult to to kind of navigate, mm. I would say. And certainly for a lot of us, it, it, it was very easy to kind of jump into the things that felt like they were the right thing to do, or at least if they were, you know, being offered to you on a plate. Um, and certainly some of us are now thinking, well, those are the wrong decisions. What what difficulties were there facing you personally as an actor coming out of, of that show? I think a lot of it was my own self. Like In what way? I well, I just I think I just thought that everything that that the work that I'd done the work. I thought, you know, cool. I've put my time in. Now I just have to sit back and watch the piles of cash roll in and all of the people desperate to to cast me in something pick up the phone. Um, even to the point where I thought it would be easier than it was to get an agent. Like, you know, loads of the guys were being picked up by big-time agencies and I was literally pounding the streets with a printout of my... Was it my CV? Because or, or, it can't have been, it can't have been my, my acting CV because that would have had one credit on it. <laughs> well, <laughs> t- well two, two if you count the baby in Casualty, which, oh, that's you know, true. that's legit. You could put yeah, that on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and also I did play Cosette in uh, in Les Mis, so there would be that as well. Oh, on stage? Yeah, yeah. Castle on a Cloud. There you are, right that here. was me. Uh, so I think, call it naivety or, or you know, big-headedness, I definitely didn't see that coming. I thought, you know, well, I was Michelle in Skin, so why wouldn't you want to represent me? And eventually I, I, I kind of fell back on a, fa- on a friend... Um, whose dad was represented by an agency, and they said, "Okay, well, look, you're the youngest person we've ever had on our books, but we'll give we'll give it a go." Um, and and I think that kind of that attitude just sort of stuck with me. Really, it was never I never thought like, "Okay, I've got to put myself." You know, you've got to do the work if you want to stay up there. You've got to be okay with going to all of the stuff and being photographed at the things and you know, meeting people and keeping in touch with them mm-hmm. and not being a big-headed asshole. And I think, really, I, you know, I was in a relationship at the time which I put kind of above a lot of things. Um, and 
you know, he wasn't a huge fan of me going to London all the time. And I just felt like I wasn't ready to move there. I remember I, I had a meeting um, at the biggest agency at the time and they said, look, if you're not willing to move to London, then what, like, we can't, you know, we can't do this. I was like, well, I'm not. I don't want to move to London. Um, and I think at the time I just thought, like, why are you asking me that? I'm April. Like, why do I can be anywhere? And, you know, I'm 19 and... I think it was it was just so new to me that kind of self-promotion aspect of this industry and the kind of making sure that you stay in in the kind of memory of the people that need to know who you are. Yeah. Um and I definitely I definitely didn't do that and that's not necessarily because it was bad advice. I think it was just total naivety. And also, that it seemed that there was no advice for you right. to, to look up and, there. And, and also, there was the comparison. There was the comparison between, you know, whilst we were filming the second series of Skins, Dev was off in India filming Slumdog Millionaire and getting nominated for Oscars. So I just thought, OK, well, he, that's his time. My time will be in a minute. And then everyone else, you know, started moving forward and getting things done. And, and I just thought that that would eventually happen for me. And, and now it's... 14 years later yeah. <laughs> and suddenly it's, it's just gone past in an instant but the thing is you know we were, t- we were touching upon the fact that the actual filming of the those first two series like for you and probably a lot of others was a great training ground it's after it all finishes then that you realize oh shit no there's a lot more that i need to learn so that conti- yeah. that continues to be your training ground after that right. totally and totally. it doesn't really stop, I, I no. don't think. Never, never. Especially in an industry that is so amazingly adaptive. Like, you know, if if this COVID that we shall not be named <laughs> um, is anything to go by, you can see the resilience of performers, actors, creative people, mm-hmm. making, just still making shit happen, doing things, using technology to to push the industry forward. And you, can, you cannot, you you know... You can always, always be part of it, learn something, meet other people, create something. And and I do think it's it's such a weird thing, but I have just about, maybe even this year, realised that I can just be me. Like, I can just be me, and if you don't like it, then you can do one. And actually, I was, I guess I was trying for so long to be like, you know especially when people would see you in the street and or in and in a job like I was literally on sat Sunday I was doing a shift in a kitchen with a friend just for some cash in hand money cuz yeah. you know we need to be paying the mortgage of course and uh someone asked for a photo with me in my chef's whites and I literally I took a photo and you know they were really happy to have met me and whatever but in my heart, my literally my heart was breaking because I felt like in some way, in their mind, they've seen me, you know, in this glamorous show and like on their tellies in their living room and then all of a sudden I'm serving their roast dinner and there shouldn't be anything wrong with that. No, absolutely not. But for me, and I guess what I'm still learning is that it is okay that there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that's where I'm at right now. And I think it was just, it was just so 
it, it always is. It always is difficult when someone goes, didn't you used to be that person? Yeah. Yeah. Because then it's, it, totally, it feels like they're invalidating what you're doing now, which they're not. They're just trying to, in their own mind, process how they know you or where they recognise you from. But like you say, being associated with a show that was so successful means that you are then tarnished with this like success brush, which means that anything that fall below, falls below that, in my mind or someone else's, is ultimately a failure. Which, well, it quite clearly isn't, because I remember there was awful backlash on an American actor, and forgive me, I forget who it was, somebody will email in going, oh, it was this fella from some American television show, and he was working in, I don't know, let's say he was working in Walmart or something like that, and someone photographed him, and they put it up on social media and went, oh, so-and-so, look at his work. And the backlash on that person that posted that and, you know, I'm not too sure about social media pylons um, and anybody that's read John Ronson's book will quite clearly um, understand why. But there is nothing wrong with somebody doing something else because, as you said, you have to pay the mortgage, you have to pay the bills. And it just so happens that you can't all be on the telly all the time doing what you want to do. It just doesn't yeah. work like that. And it kind of links it back into that thing that you said about falling back. So what am I falling back on to, you know, serving roasts on Sunday? Mm-hmm. No, it's it's a necessity. Yeah. The art of this job is what you do in between. That's if you're really skilled at this job, it's being able to keep your brain in a position where if the phone does ring, you can drop your life and go and be, you know... <laughs> princess margaret at the drop of a hat yeah and it's also like what you were saying before you were thinking you're coming out of this amazing successful show so i will sit here and i will wait for all the scripts to come in and the phone i'll probably have to get two phones because it'll be so red hot yeah and it's just not the reality no and also we have to keep doing things we have to keep active not just for financial reasons but for your own fucking brain yeah totally and I think it wasn't really until I met my husband um, that I I actually understood that kind of nature of resilience and needing to create for the love of creating because he's a director and a filmmaker and um, he'll just... If someone tells me he can't make a film, he'll just do it anyway. And I think that is so um, uh, infectious, that attitude. It's such a great um, attitude. I love it. Oh, it's just like... He's, he's the only person really that I've met that's like that and uh, and since I met him and moved to Brighton we've made seven feature films together just like because and each of them have been growing in in budget and experience and um, you know as, as, as much as it sounds like oh now I do loads of creating it's still shit it's still fucking hard yeah. raising finance for anything in this industry as you know is in, almost impossible even more and, so now Exactly. And so you're then, you know, you're doing, you're on a shoot and you're like, right, okay, I've got to put 15 hats on because I've got to do, in a minute, I'm going to go and cook the jacket potatoes because <laughs> we've got no catering today yeah. or whatever it is. But like, like you say, it's, it's keeping, keeping going. And I think that's another thing that um, has been tricky about this period of, of lockdown is the, the kind of forced stillness for some, for, definitely for creatives who need to keep the, the, the cogs going. Yeah. Um, 
to have to stop and just think about stuff is suddenly quite um quite weird and alien did you we touched on it well i think you touched on it a, a while back when when we're having these conversations I, I keep logging into my brain going all right i've got to put that there because i want to ask her about that and i've got to move on but i've got to listen <laughs> at the same time skill. that's a very good skill it's taken me three years of many podcasting to figure it out um did you find being recognized on the street difficult um and and i'm not just i'm i suppose that's two different questions i mean probably now and at, at the the peak of when skins was the, what it was this huge huge juggernaut of a television show so it's a weird one that because i think definitely i mean obviously if we ever went out together it was you just couldn't move i, I bet it was just mental um and and individually like i would say at the time at the height i i i loved the feeling of it but when it was happening it was very intrusive and quite um actually intimidating um certainly when it was like groups of people uh-huh. and also because i guess the the character i was known for is very much a kind of sexual icon i think that that didn't necessarily help so it felt I felt like I had to dress a different way straighten my hair try and not get um noticed as much but I do remember thinking like I almost looked for it I'd be like okay there's a group of young people they'll they'll know me oh there's another group of young people they'll know who I am and then it was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy because when they would recognize me I'd be like oh god don't look at me and in a way, I'd sort of wanted them to. So right. then I went through a weird like period of time where it started to kind of peter out. And I'd miss it. I'd be like, why is no one recognising me? And then still, when someone would come up to me, I'd be like, oh, God, eye roll. Here we go again. And it was something that... It, it felt like I needed that for validation that people still knew who I was. Uh-huh. But every time it happened, I didn't want it to happen. Of course. So it was it was a completely double-edged sword. And now, I mean, it's still... I think, like you said earlier, it's it it's kind of transcended the ages, the show, and people are finding it now. I mean, literally, this pub I was working in on the Sunday, um, one of the KPs I was working with was like, oh, God, my mum loved Skins. I was like, oh, God. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Okay, we've reached a new realm here. So your mum loves Skins. That makes you... How old are you? 15? Sure, sure. Totally legitimate. Okay, cool. Um, right. But... I think, it, I mean, it always, obviously, it always happens when you're feeling shit, you've been up all night with food poisoning, you're carrying 85 Asda bags from the car, uh-huh. and someone goes, can I have a picture? Yeah. And I always do, because um, I just, I, I love the fact that people are brave enough to ask. And, but also, um, it, it costs nothing. Yeah. But I also, when I was doing my little um, podcasty thing, I, I interviewed Sharon Rooney, who was in um, My Mad Fad Diary. She's great, yeah. She's just so great. And she said something which I... if some This is the thing. If someone had told me when I came out of Skins, you aren't Michelle from Skins, you're April. She said, if someone said comes up to her and go, are you, are you Ray from My Mad Fat Diary? She goes, no, I'm Sharon. Because immediately you've, you're boundaries. Immediately uh-huh. you've got a thing where actually you don't owe that person something. You're not the person who was sat in their living room with them doing your acting. Or, you know, they don't know you. Of course. They know the character. Yeah. 
And it was literally, that was this year, that was like a month ago. And it was a light bulb moment. And I, I will need to practice. I will need to practice that to be able to, to just give myself a bit of identity. Yeah, and also, but, you know, and I'm sure you, you would, I'm sure anybody would, but you, you would have to also be careful about how you would come across by saying that. Because then mm-hmm. you go, well, I, no, I don't, sorry, I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I'm just, you know, I mean, you wouldn't want to come across as that. Yeah, but it's also, it's an easier way to then ask what they're called. Absolutely. You know, there's always that thing of, are you Michelle from Skins? Yeah. And then it's this sort of dead space of, oh, okay. Cool. Do you want a picture? Yeah, 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 do, yeah. Like, it just, it it might, I mean, it might help, it might not, but I think it was, it was more the thought, the thought, I think, um... Yeah, no, I would hate to come across like actually. No, of course, um, yeah, of course not. But you do know, you mind? I, you know, I've I've seen certain things like that happen with with other people who uh, mm-hmm. I will not name. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you after we stop recording. Um, now, <laughs> speak. You did touch on the, your podcast series there, um, because we started by talking about what's going on. I kind of want to end with what's talking with towards talking about what is going on do you think you would have started your podcast series if you weren't forced into a situation where you had to find other outlets of creativity it's interesting me and jamie my husband actually talked about this um a good two years ago because right i it's it, so there's there's two things one the the idea has been there for a long time um we've talked a lot about my social media platform and how I don't use it for anything and you know there's a there was always a very healthy subscription level that I would kind of you know put like here's some of my breakfast and like (laughs) all the really important things that people really want to know yeah right and so I never kind of used it for anything that was self-promotive or like anything just to say something good to the hundreds of thousands of people that were following and I think it was fear 100% 100% fear mm-hmm. that meant that I wouldn't share myself more or share more of what I was thinking. Um, I guess I felt somewhat in some way sort of unworthy of that following. Like, who, you know, maybe like, why, why are you following me anymore? I'm not, you know, in a big TV show. I'm not successful, inverted commas, anymore. Um, and I think what lockdown did was it kind of, a bit like we were saying earlier, it gave me that thing of, well we're all in the same storm. I may as well sail my boat out into it and see if I can, you know, and, and see if I can strap a life raft to another boat, you know? And uh, and I think it was maybe what I, like the push that I needed to, to be able to engage in a way that felt kind of um, useful, transparent. Yeah. And, and it's been... Um, it's been it's gone really well yeah it's worked yeah it's really worked so um did you so yeah did you get something out of it for yourself Uh, i feel like i got uh it's definitely changed my whole thought process around um my experience because i suppose when when you experience something and it's similar to somebody else and they're in a totally different situation but it can be relatable you feel less alone yeah. and that 100% was my experience to, um, doing the 
the show. And is it still there? Can people still go back and watch it? Has it been put onto YouTube? Question mark. I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm debating at the minute. The, the sort of resounding uh, uh, opinion is that people want it as a podcast because because it's kind of long form. It's the it's the sort of forty five minute to an hour. Yeah. People want want to be able to listen to it mm-hmm. while they're gardening on the on the tube on no, not on the tube, but you know. <laughs> don't go on the tube. Don't go on the tube. Wherever they are at a safe distance from people. Yes. Um, and uh, I think I'm probably going to do that. I will probably try and, and rectify some of the audio because obviously it was recorded live um, on Instagram. And uh, it's going to be amazing to be able to go into it and edit it. Yeah. Because obviously live, it's you just have to go with it. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll put the first series up as a podcast probably. And then, and then the second series, um, I've got... I mean, I've actually got PR companies asking me if they want this person to go on the show. So that's exciting. Um, and what I'll probably do is is record... I feel like I'm going to be like the Instagram mark mode where I'll do the podcast and the Instagram simultaneously and then you can get, like, extra podcast bits uh, when the Instagram live feed ends. We'll see. We'll see. Or it's what? a lot of work, though, Craig. Yeah, I know. GL. I know. Tell me about it. I've been doing it, th- I mean, been doing it three years. Yeah. You think, oh, gosh. Everyone's like, I'll do a podcast. You're like, wait a minute. What? Yeah. And also, you've got one thing I strive to achieve and sometimes fail spectacularly is I, I want new guests on. I want fresh people on. I, I want people who... I want to have a conversation with, but I don't right. want people who have just been doing the rounds, who's is on every other sort of long form interview because yeah. you tend to, and going back to right at the beginning when I was saying, when I was talking to actors, I don't want to talk about work that much or certain, because they just churn out the same old anecdotes that they've, that they've just done on Jonathan Rosso or they've done on another mm-hmm. podcast and it's not fresh or interesting for the listeners yeah. or or for me, or for the guest. I don't think you fail at that spectacularly. I think you always sound engaged with your listener, even if it's a little pretense. It's no, it certainly is the pretense. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. I do think you're right. It's it's so about t- talking to someone that you want to know what they've got to say. Yeah. And they want to tell you. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing about certainly the 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 sort of I guess the hook or what makes my show like you know um specific to me is the fact that the guests who i have on have also experienced what i've experienced in terms of being in a thing and being known for that thing yeah and it gives us this sort of weird like kinship that's that like we could have gone to the same school and we're just rem- reminiscing about that and actually it's it's just it's maybe it's just actors moaning i mean i'm a bit worried that that's what this is uh, no 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 <laughs> Uh, no, no, it isn't on both levels, and that's why I strive not to have many actors on. I have uh, lovely, brilliant actors such as yourself, and I can't uh, thank you enough for coming on. I've really, really enjoyed this. It's been brilliant. And let me know uh, when the podcast is going to be out and when Series 2 is going to be out, and I will give it a push and thank l- you. let all our lovely listeners Go back and listen to it because the 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 two that uh, I watched I thought were fantastic and I think you've got a real knack. And I think it's so much. I think it's a brilliant Thanks premise. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on, and go and get yourself a ninety nine. 
Oh, I, w- I will. <laughs> a bit of stick of rock as well. <laughs> April Pearson, thank you so much. You take thank care. Thank you. And another episode is done. What a brilliant chat with April. And I can't thank her enough for taking the time out to come on. And a massive thank you to you for downloading and subscribing and sending in your messages via social media and your emails and your support. You know, it really, really means a lot. If you are a Patreon backer, a big, big thank you. Because I know, you know, times are hard. So to part with whatever you do to support this podcast means the absolute world. And myself and producer Griff cannot thank you enough. And also, do you know what? If you're not, or you can't help us out with Patreon, with the episodes that we give you week in, week out, for free, then word of mouth, spread the word of the Two Shot Podcast because it means loads. And the more people who join us, hopefully the more people will be able to come to the live shows that are going to be happening next year. Remember the tour that we were tentatively planning and we'd booked certain venues? Well, we are looking into certain dates of going back. We've already booked one podcast festival, which I can't tell you, but it is in the spring alongside some incredible podcasts over the course of a day. Um, So as soon as we're allowed to tell you, I will let you know where you can get tickets and you can come and see us. You would be most welcome. So, look, until next week, have a damn good week. Look after yourself, look after others, take care. I know there's certain friends of mine um, who aren't going through a particularly great time at the moment, and I send you all my love. And also to parents, certain parents, I know their kids are being sent home from schools already, just when they were getting a bit of structure back into their life, and that is the children I'm talking about, and they get it taken away from them. Um, but look, oh, dig deep, stay strong, and until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care, and I'll see you next week. Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Two Shot.